You are listening to the Cycling Podcast at the 2022 Vuelta España, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Today we are in Tomares. Hello and buenas tardes from La Vuelta a España. My name is Daniel Freeber. I'm the host of tonight's episode. And as you heard our friend Rob Hatch just say, I am in Tomares, still in Andalucía. Um, we're starting week three, the final week of this Vuelta a España. And joining me tonight from, I should actually say, before we, before I go on to tell you who's joining me tonight, Tomares, I learned today, is the richest place in Andalusia, or certainly one of them. This might have something to do with the fact that in 2016, a, in a park just around the corner, they found 600 kilos of Roman coins. So the locals may just have been, I don't know, they may have invested those 600 kilos of Roman coins in Bitcoin or something. Um, in fact, if they had, they probably they wouldn't have been very happy over the last six months. No longer people were looking a, bit, a little bit glum at the finish line today. Um, joining me tonight from Villefranche-sur-Mer, no doubt fresh from a stroll down the promenade in his, his white gant slacks with his yellow Ralph Lauren jumper knotted around his shoulders, his mirrored aviators glinting, his area of straight off the yacht confidence wafting on the, wafting, wafting on the sea breeze. It's Detroit's most popular export since the Corvette. He is the current AG2R Citroën professional, veteran of four Vueltas a España, Tour de Suisse stage winner and the 2017 US national champion. It's lucky Larry Warbass. Hey, Daniel. How are you, Larry? Yeah, good, good. Doing well. Good to be here. Happy to be back. Was that an accurate picture of you on a typical afternoon on the Riviera? Yeah, pretty much, you know. Uh, not too far off. I do drape the, the sweatshirt or sweater on my shoulders, but, uh, you know, I've advanced from the aviators, so... Still okay, mirrored okay. lenses, but yeah, I, I can definitely, I can definitely see it in that vein. Um, Larry, it was a rest day for us yesterday. Long drive across Andalusia. I'm very grateful for the amount of time we've been spending in Andalusia um, over the last well, week. We've been here now. We finally leave the region tomorrow, but we discovered another part of Andalusia yesterday, particularly on that three-hour drive. In our case, from Granada to San Lucar de Barameda. Um, this morning, we were in the mix zone this morning, which was under a Ferris wheel, bizarrely, and next to our Danish colleagues from TV2. And um, the cameraman, Nick, I discovered this morning, is obsessed with uh, the lost city of Atlantis. And he was regaling me this morning with one of the most popular theories about the location of Atlantis. And it was about 100 metres from the, mis- the mix zone this morning. Um, so that was quite exciting. It's, it's not not in Dubai. Um, well, I think that is possibly another <laughs> hypothesis. Um, but that will that will be by no means the only conspiracy theory or tall tale, tall theory in tonight's podcast. There's another one coming about something unfortunate that happened at the end of today's stage. Most people probably know what I'm referring to already. But, Larry, before we go to the stage summary time trial, let's, let's continue to talk about the mix zone this morning, or at least one conversation I had in the mix zone this morning, and that was with a rider who I thought might fare pretty well today, the British rider Fred Wright, who had some good news to announce, certainly from Bahrain Victorious's point of view. Um, on the rest day, the team announced that he had signed a new deal, which will keep him at that team until 2025 let's hear a bit of fred wright this morning um speaking to me in san lucar de barameda um, not very far from the lost city of atlantis here's fred 
Big news from the rest there. You have re-signed with Bahrain Victorious. Just tell us as much as you can about well the, the decision-making process and why you have decided to stay. Um, you know, I think I started my pro cycling career at the team, and you know, I'm sort of well part of the family now. And it's you know, they they've got big sort of big plans for the classics and and the next the next few years. And I'm you know, I really want to be a part of that, and it's a place where I can get all the opportunities that I, I could possibly want and I think that's why it was it was it was always going to be the best the best decision for me it's a, it's a great job that we do and uh, no I just can't wait to get to winning bike races with this team because no that's what yeah that's what I really want to do so yeah <laughs> starting with today oh yeah well we'll see we'll see about today I mean it's the finish suits me but again whether it's controlled I mean it's a long day to be in the breakaway but There'll be guys that are keen for it, maybe. I don't know. When you say the finish suits you, what part of the finish? Because obviously you can kind of break it down into last 5K, last 1K, last 20K. It's just that, you know, that last 3.5K is a bit, a bit tricky. You know, you've got a kicker and it's quite steep. I mean, it shouldn't should thin, thin things out a little bit, make this finish a bit harder. And then the actual finish itself, you know, from the, from the last roundabout, it's just 4%. So... Nice. That kind of sprint is where where I think I can really shine, and I kind of showed that the other day where I was fourth. I mean, I was maybe a, a bit too far back, but I was coming. I was coming quick, so you know, get the position right today, and I'd, I'm in for a shot for a good result. So, Larry, that was Fred Wright this morning, outlining how he hoped to win the stage, finally take this stage victory, the first stage victory in a Grand Tour that has so far eluded him. Um, we thought it might end in a sprint, an outright sprint, a tough one because we knew the finish was slightly uphill. But that's not really what we got. And, um, well, you're going to tell us what we got. So I'm going to ask Rob Hash to cue us up. El resumen del día a contrarreloj. The stage summary time trial. You have already donned your skin suit, your super snood, your, I don't know, maybe the mirrored aviators, and you're about to roll down the start ramp. <laughs> Larry Warbass, you have 90 seconds, starting from now. Okay, today was stage 16 from San Lucar de Barrameda to Tomares, 189.4 kilometers. They did the stage with an average speed of 39.8 k an hour. Um, in the end, it was Mads Peterson taking the victory ahead of Pascal Ackermann and Danny Van Poppel. For the majority of the day, there were only two riders in the breakaway, Luis Angel Mate. Uh, so cool because finally, yeah, he planted really a lot of trees today because he was there for 174 kilometers with Ander Okamika. So yeah, they got caught with 14k to go, and it was a tough finish with um, a couple little kickers, some short climbs, and yeah, we saw a nice attack from Primoz Roglic with maybe a little over 2k to go. Um, yeah, I'm actually surprised he found a small gap on the left side, went up, and uh, yeah, he split the bunch, and there were five guys in front. Um, unfortunately, he crashed with uh, about like 100 or so meters to go. And yeah, we are still awaiting um, results of that. So um, hopefully he'll be fine. But that was pretty much everything. Remco Evanapol is still in the red jersey after a late puncture, which didn't really look that flat to me. But uh, yeah, Mads Peterson holds oh, the points. No, oh, this is... This is- and this is the Jay day of the conspiracy the theories. Come on. 
and yeah. that is why well, I make that 87 seconds so well done Larry no, um, oh, I'm, I'm loving this you've teed us up for another another <laughs> scurrilous talking point in yeah. the second part and um, we should also say that well providing Primoz Roglic continues the Vuelta España tomorrow he did still gain some time because of course the three kilometer rule does apply so he came in effectively eight seconds ahead of the main peloton um and well as you said larry no other major changes on general classification we have had a little bit of news from jumbo visma we'll hear from them we'll hear from their direct sportive addy engels in a minute primos Roglic has not gone to hospital we don't believe we Still don't know too much about the circumstances of the crash, but we will speculate. Um, we will speculate wildly and recklessly about that in the second part. But without further ado, let's hear from a few of today's protagonists. Let's hear from Addy Engels, first of all, explaining what he knows about what happened at the finish to Primoz Roglic. And then let's hear from Fred Wright after the finish um, he he did manage to get away in that group at the end but could only come in fourth um, did you say that Larry you probably did I wasn't really paying attention that Fred Wright was in fourth no I, I didn't mention that because I mentioned I just said the podium but, oh, but yeah okay, okay. sorry you, pa- you were painting you were painting very I broad brushstrokes like I should have <laughs> mentioned your favourite rider like 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 the um like the romantic impressionist artist that you are you're painting very broad brushstrokes and but that's okay that's okay we're going to hear from fred hey 90 seconds you know yes we got to be concise so Addy Engels first fred Wright second and then last of the three voices you're going to hear is our old mate mate luis angel the links of marbella who as you said larry did some sterling reforestation today we had the plan to um, to try uh, to go for it uh, for for stage result, but of course also to take back time and then the GG um, with a with a suitable final. So uh, I think that plan went uh, went really well. Uh, Primoz got in front uh, with a small group. Uh, to the finish but what happens I mean we didn't even know uh, because we we had television but the, the crash itself we, we missed so we, we thought he just finished in the, in the, in the group in, uh, ahead of the, of the first bunch and then suddenly we, uh, we hear that he crashed uh, in the last straight so that's uh, yeah uh, the, 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 the plan like I said what, what, what we wanted there was a very small chance that, that you succeed uh, on the final like this. There we succeed. And then it goes all wrong in the last few hundred meters, which is, uh, yeah, bizarre, exactly. Yeah, of course, we, we have to see now how, uh, how bad the injuries are. I mean, he's, uh, yeah, obviously he's injured. Uh, and, and I can't, I mean, he's, he's in the bus now trying to, uh, to clean everything and... Uh, and then we have to see how, how bad it is. But I think uh, this is, uh, yeah, to me it looks like more than eight seconds, these injuries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, to make the chaos uh, even more complete, um, the leader of the race uh, wasn't in the main group at that yes. moment. So yes. how, how, did, how, did you, um, how did you react on that on the car? Uh, not. Just all out to the finish. And then we see what the result at the finish is. 
Well, Fred, take us back to the moment when, well, pretty much Roglic surprised us all and, well, got a gap. Yeah, man, that was one of the hardest upper sprints I've ever done in my life. Just waiting for the top and just to, like, sit on a wheel, but, yeah. I, I had to stall a bit on the climb, actually, that, that messed me up a bit, but it was still flat out to the top and, yeah, I, I thought, okay, I'll sit at the back this time. I don't know if they know I'm here. You know, a bit different to last time, but... I, I mean, I got out of the saddle and tried to go, but the legs didn't really have it, I must say. I think it didn't help that Roglic was coming back. Like, he, he crashed, didn't he? Yeah. I don't, that wasn't... Well, I was coming out and around, and he was coming back close to the line, so I don't know. Was, hope it's all right. <laughs> of all the scenarios you envisaged this morning and the way you might try and win it, was that one of them, that a group might detach itself like that? Nah, not really. I just knew I had to stay around Mads around Danny and uh, Ackerman and see. I think I kind of knew it would be us four, like, sprinting for it. But, yeah, maybe not quite like that. In the end, we were just following Roglic. <laughs> How much of an effort was that with Primoz's uh, power at the front? Ah, it was pretty, it was something special, you know. You could tell they planned that one in the, in the meeting, but, yeah, I'm a bit disappointed again, but I think this time, she didn't really have the legs. I mean, we'll look at the climb again and maybe I was a bit too far back again, but I didn't, we didn't expect to go that hard, you know. In my head, it was like a sprinter's team riding at a pace that would stop people attacking, but there's no stopping Roglic when he wants to do something like that, so. Finally, some trees. Finally, finally. <laughs> finally some trees. Tell us how, how did you make it happen today? Um, t take us back to the start this morning. Uh-huh. Yeah, for, for us, this is our race, the, the breakways, the, the, uh, the attacks, every day, every kilometer of this Vuelta is special for us because it's our, our, our principal objective. For me also is, is special. Uh, in, th in those roads when I was young, uh, junior, I grown here in, the, <laughs> in these towns of Andalusia. And for me, mm, Staying the breakway today was really, really special. How did you try to fool the peloton? How did you try to trick them? Was really difficult because the wind was phased, and yeah, we tried to stay with energy for the last 25 k's because the last part was technical with some steep uh, parts and with a lot of corners, but. With only two riders, it's, 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 it's really difficult. I don't know why... Yeah, I don't know why other teams don't try it because yeah, always win the same, or Pedersen or another sprinter. And for us, it's the only way to, to try to win is the breakaway. But with only two riders, it's very difficult. With every kilometer, were you picturing another tree, thinking there's another one, another one? Yeah, 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 it was, 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 really, was really good. Uh, the people <coughs> in the road say to me, come on, Luis, one more tree, one more tree. And, and for sure, that's, that's, that's is a very, very big motivation. The Cycling Podcast at the 2022 Vuelta España, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Still guessing on fueling? Not sure what or when to eat and drink on rides that matter? Never again. Optimize your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data, actionable insights, and personalized analytics. 
We're here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success. Thank you very much to Super Sapiens, our title sponsors. If you'd like to find out more about Super Sapiens and the system of continuous glucose monitoring, go to supersapiens.com or listen to the Super Sapiens podcast for a really deep dive into how athletes are using the technology to tweak and fine tune their fueling and their energy management to get the best out of themselves on race day. Sam Brand is someone we've been hearing from in recent episodes and he rides for Team Novo Nordisk and like all the riders on the team Sam is a type 1 diabetic and so he uses continuous glucose monitoring technology not just to aid his performance but to manage his diabetes. Sam was in action at the weekend racing at the new Maryland Cycling Classic which was won by Sepp van Mark of Israel Premier Tech. The race finished in Baltimore and there at the finish he met up with Stacey Snyder who was on her way back from a trip to the Vuelta a España so cycling podcast worlds colliding a little bit there in Baltimore. In this clip, we're going to hear from Sam about his his pride and his excitement at being selected to ride the Commonwealth Games in Birmingham for the Isle of Man team and lining up with some illustrious teammates. What an absolute experience that was. I think it was just incredible. Uh, I went to Birmingham uh, Commonwealth Games and it was just an experience of a lifetime. I mean, the crowds were insane. The amount of Manx flags, you know, there were, I think there were more Manx flags than any other flag combined. It was just incredible. And so even somebody had a Manx tea towel, you know, there was people obviously grabbing as much Manx memorabilia as possible and, and shouting and you know, to, to line up against one of, if not the best sprinter of all time in Mark Cavendish. We also had Ben Swift in the team. And to line up against those guys was a lot for me uh, in terms of, you know, experience. It was phenomenal to be able to do that. But also, I was there to raise awareness for people living with diabetes. That's my day job. But that's also my passion. It's what I've built my career around. And that's something that I didn't want to forget. El Diario Remco, the Daily Remco. Yeah, it did me well, uh, especially after uh, the hard weekend. I think uh, it was very welcome for a lot of riders. Uh, so yeah, uh, I had some uh, some good refueling, uh, a small bike ride, then a lot of time on the bed and on the massage table, and then uh, a good sleep. I think we have to be awake every day. Uh, the world is uh, is only over. Uh, at the start in Madrid. Well, Larry, that was Remco Evenepoel sounding very rested this morning. I'm so well rested that I even remember which on which syllable to put the stress in Evenepoel. But he did sound very confident this morning in the mix zone. And, well, he sounded very confident in the press conference after the finish today. He, he sounded positively bullish. Um sheepish about the fact that Primoz Roglic had crashed and um, he offered his sort of sympathy to Primoz Roglic. I don't think he really knew anything about the circumstances of the crash and I think he said he he tried to speak to Roglic after the finish. He did bump into him briefly but Roglic was, was obviously groggy and Remco wasn't able to extract much information. But Avonapol said at the finish today, Larry, that he had his eyes on... He had previously had his eyes on a stage win today. He had also been hatching a plan to try to get away or try to break the peloton somehow in that finale. Um, didn't 
happen. As you mentioned, he had a puncture in those last three kilometers. A suspicious puncture, Larry? I don't know. To me, it just like, it didn't look flat at all, uh, his tire. And I was like, oh, maybe he uh, dropped his chain or something and then it was hard to get back on. So then he put his hand up. But uh, yeah, it was really weird. I don't know what happened. But in the end, I mean, you know, if he says he had a puncture, maybe he did have a puncture. It's hard to see from TV. But uh, yeah, it didn't look that flat to me. But, but you know, it's hard to say if you're not there. So maybe it was a slow leak or something. Well, Larry, the race finished about an hour ago in or an hour and a half ago. In that hour and a half, I've been doing very important detective work, taking plasticine samples and, and so on and so forth, of which more later. So I haven't been able to well, repeatedly watch those last three kilometres and, and sort of slow it down and check the timing of the, the various events, the various things that happened in those last three kilometres. When, in relation to Primoz Roglic's attack, did the puncture occur? Like, pretty much just after he attacked, he somehow all of a sudden got a puncture. So, I don't know, it was just kind of like really wild timing if you know like like i don't know you know it's just like yeah it's very possible that it happened you know that that can definitely happen but yeah you know i don't think it was in super good position uh primo's attacked i don't know all of a sudden like he gets a flat tire and sits up but like totally sits up and stops and get off his gets off his bike you know so he definitely made them aware that he had a mechanical without insinuating anything without casting any aspersions on Remco Avonapol, without naming any other names. Larry, have you ever heard <laughs> of colleagues, peers, other riders faking mechanicals? Oh, yeah, I mean, that's definitely a thing that has happened before. You know, I mean, I don't think it would happen that often, but, like, you know, um, that's definitely happened uh, or happens every once in a while. I mean, you know? what, what I mean, controls... Whether it's faking or, I don't know, you know, it's like, I mean... You know, if someone, I mean, like literally, I'm sure he, he did have a flat tire probably if he stopped. But um, but it's hard, you know, because it's like if someone's not in a good position, if the bunch is breaking, you know, like and they're going to lose time, it would be really convenient to just have them, you know, mechanical. And so then you're on the same time because like a stage finish like this, it's, you know, there's 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 a three kilometer rule, you know, it's kind of like one of these things where it's like, should there even be a three kilometer rule on like an uphill kind of finish? Yeah. Uh, that's more like a question. I mean, um, I would, I would sort of suggest, and obviously you can't write this into the rule book, but any stage on which a GC rider like Primoz Roglic can attack and thinks that they can gain time, then that automatically means that it's not the kind of stage that should have a three kilometer rule would be my sort of contention, right. but obviously it's difficult to ordain that in advance. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's just like there are surely times that this has happened before where if someone, yeah, is not in the best situation, if they get a flat, quote unquote, um, you know, then they don't lose any time and uh, there's no risk. So, I mean, whether that's what happened to him or not, I have no clue. But uh, but yeah, (laughs) you never know. Well, he did say that he felt very good today. He was quite explicit about that, said it on a couple of occasions in the press conference. But I was quite surprised to hear him talk about this hypothetical plan to try and win the stage today. A, he doesn't need to win 
the stage. And B, while we have seen Roglic, particularly on those small rises in the last three kilometres, do this before, although even by his standards, I thought today's was a, 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 a scintillating attack. Um, but I, haven't, I don't associate that kind of thing with Remco quite as much. No, I don't know. It was just kind of like funny because he was also saying like how, I mean, if I heard correctly, he was also talking about how um, Roglic also profited from the 3K rule because he crashed and whatever, whatever. And so, you know, he just made like a big thing about it. And that was also kind of suspicious to me. But but yeah, I don't know. Hmm. hmm. Well, let's talk about other suspicious goings on Larry without being flippant because unfortunately Primoz Roglic does look to be quite badly injured this evening and well we're all disappointed we're all disappointed we're disappointed because this rider seems to be fatally attracted to misfortune and there's a sense I think there's a collective sense that he's he's very often the victim of injustice and he seems to be the the victim of injustice again today. I mean, those three kilometers, they sort of crystallized and epitomized in some ways the career of Primoz Roglic over the last few years. I mean, away from the Vuelta España and away from other races because he's still a rider who has definitely left a huge mark on, well, on this generation now. And I don't think, I mean, Larry, you, you'll be able to, to confirm this, but among his peers, um, he's incredibly highly thought of and he's admired as, you know, one of, if not the greatest riders of this generation. So, um, but notwithstanding, yeah, notwithstanding all that success, there have been these moments of, of great unexpected and unmerited adversity. And today was another one of them. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that, that, like, uh, I felt really bad for him today, you know, it's just like, yeah, he did this awesome attack, made, you know, what was pretty much a boring up until then stage quite exciting in the finale and like yeah to me it was so unexpected because he came from pretty far back um found the gap and then like yeah did this awesome attack was about to stay away to the line with you know just essentially the four best uphill sprinters in the race and um yeah unfortunately like he's almost over the line and he ends up crashing but I, I guess you know that can happen when you're on the limit like that and like you know, surely all of them were super full gas. And you heard from Fred Wright, too, uh, or maybe we'll hear from him later, just talking about how hard the sprint was. And I think, you know, not everyone's entirely lucid. Okay, okay. Uh, Yeah, not everyone's entirely lucid in that situation. And like, when your heart rate, you know, is close to 200, um, if you just make one small move, you know, you can crash. So uh, I think it was just, yeah, this is too bad to see. Or, Larry, if there's a big splat of children's plasticine on the road at 90 <laughs> metres to go. And, and, I, I think you and, need to explain your theory and then I'll well, explain mine. Well, I should explain my sleuthing. So uh, after the finish, um, not too many riders were stopping to talk and Jumbo Visma, the riders, they certainly made a beeline for the team bus. They were pretty upset, obviously. Um and well as this crowd dispersed i sort of headed back down the finish line to try to do a bit of investigation i mean i could actually this was pretty i sort of made a bit of a macabre discovery there was still sort of blood on the road which could well have been from primos roglic where he crashed so about 90 meters to go but then my attention was drawn and it couldn't not be drawn to a huge splodge of sort of 
multicolored, what well, looked like plasticine, and various other journalists, photographers who also saw it said that it probably was plasticine. How, you know, that got there? Um, who on earth was playing, I don't know, with Play-Doh at 90 metres to go from the finish so on the stage? What is, what is plasticine? Plasticine, I don't know what the word is in, in American English, Larry. I don't know. I've, ne- <laughs> I've, never, been to De- I've never been to Detroit. I don't know what you call it there. What, uh, what's the, the, the soft, okay. sticky stuff that kids play with and make like models out of? Yeah, Play-Doh. Play-Doh, Play-Doh. yeah. So it looked very much like yeah. Play-Doh. And it was very slippy. And okay. it was, yeah. I don't know... 10 centimetres across, 30 centimetres long, this splodge. Um, and it was on the white line. And, it, it, you know, watching back, trying to be as fastidious as possible about kind of watching back the, the crash and the moment when it happened and exactly where Roglic was on the road and also the way his wheel went from under him, that looked to me like a plausible explanation. Other people have since said that, no, it looked as though he touched shoulders with Fred Wright. Fred Wright didn't... A.K.A. me said that? Well, yeah, you're not the only one. <laughs> you're not the only defender okay. defender of that thesis, Larry. But Fred Wright didn't mention any contact. And in fact, he seemed... Well, he seemed to have deduced that Primoz Roglic had crashed on the basis of the fact that he didn't see Roglic in the sprint. And then when he turned around after the sprint, he didn't see Roglic. He may have said... Fred Wright may have said something different to... He did other interviews at the finish. But when he spoke to me, he certainly didn't seem aware of any contact that he'd made with anyone. That's the, ca- that's the case for the prosecution. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. When, when, when I, I rewatched the, uh, the final a few times, it just looks like he bumps into Fred Wright when he's coming back. And uh, that was kind of how he went down. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. That's just, to me, that's what it appeared. Uh, although it very well could you, be um, You weren't there, Play-Doh. Larry. You didn't dip your finger in the play- Play-Doh. You didn't, you, you no, didn't send, send it off for uh, no, laboratory no. analysis. Maybe we'll get the results of that, of that tomorrow. But, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a terrible shame for the race, isn't it? Because, well, we all saw Roglic bloodied and bruised and looking very forlorn. Um, after the finish and well the fact that he did attack today and he attacked in the manner that he did suggested that we were in for a great final week because we've heard and we've sort of measured and we've seen with our own eyes the confidence growing in the Jumbo Visma camp every day and okay Sierra Nevada I think they hoped for better Roglic hoped for better but it was still as I said on Sunday it was the continuation of a positive trend he still gained time on Remco and his attack today suggested that well, he was going to eat into Remco's advantage even more. He did that. He's gained eight seconds, but he might not be at the start tomorrow. Yeah. Well, let's hope that he is able to recover and is totally fine and at the start because, uh, yeah, it looks like it's going to be a really exciting race. I sort of alluded to the fact, Larry, that part of Roglic's popularity or how his popularity has developed certainly among the fans has, it has something to do with this kind of tragic... Um, subtext that there has been at moments, at certain moments of his career over the last few years. But just um, tell me, confirm to me what I generally hear from riders about Roglic. He's someone who's pretty well liked in the peloton. Yeah, definitely. You know, I think um, anyone who ever has spoken with him, you know, I think the general consensus is he's, he's really, he's a kind guy and, you know, he's just relaxed and chill and, uh, you know, he's not one of these sort of prima donna guys who like, goes around with his uh, nose turned up uh, at all the guys. You know, he's just really, um, you know, he's just 
he seems kind of like a gentleman in the bunch, you know, he's not pushing anyone around. He's not sort of bossy or arrogant. And, uh, yeah, I think, you know, he just, uh, he does his thing. He keeps to himself. And, uh, yeah, I think, so I think that's why he's, he's pretty, pretty well liked. Plus, I mean, he's just a classy rider, you know, the way he wins races. I mean, even down to the way he sits on the bike, you know, he's just so smooth and, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, he, he looks really good on a bike. And, and I think just even things like that, I think uh, he really impresses uh, a lot of guys in the bunch. And these guys, Larry, there are a few of them and every generation has a few who are great bike riders, very successful bike riders, but they seem to be bedeviled by misfortune. You look at someone like Geraint Thomas, who, you know, he, he ended up winning a Tour de France and has had a fantastic career anyway, but did seem to, and has seemed to crash, or he's had more than his kind of quota of crashes. Roglic is the same. Is it coincidence? Um, or is there always an element of um, maybe not recklessness, but whether it's uh, just slight deficiencies in bike handling or um, taking too many risks, going into situations where um, they're likely to find danger? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say it's total coincidence, you know. I mean, I think uh, when you see the same guys crashing over and over again, um, I, I just don't think that can be exactly a coincidence, you know. And, and what it is exactly, you know, I don't really know. Um, because, you know, there's some guys that like rarely or hardly ever crash. And then there's some guys who crash a lot. So, you know, it always kind of seems like the same guys. And I don't know, you know, for example, if you take Primos or you take G, um, I think the thing is, is like maybe they're more often in some dangerous situations, just like if you're at the front of the race fighting for the win and you're going down, you know, a descent, full tilt, things like that, you know, like that's that's high risk, you know, uh, rather than like being in the bunch, just following wheels or something. So, um, you know, I think maybe it's just if you're fighting for the win that often uh, in a lot of these scenarios, um it can magnify some of these things and, uh, yeah, it can cause, you know, some guys to maybe crash more often than others or if they were in a different, I don't know, part of the race, sort of. Larry, one rider who has stayed upright throughout this Vuelta España and, well, he looks imperious in the sprints now is today's winner, Mads Pedersen. Anything to say about the way that he pulled that off today? I mean, we predicted it and what he delivered. Yeah, I mean, I have to say it was pretty impressive when you saw Roglic attack and uh, Ackerman was pretty much straight on the wheel and like Mads, he had to react a bit late or maybe he just wasn't really in the best position to follow immediately. And the way he was able to like close the gap to those two in front was really impressive. You know, I think like, you know, he just did it. it, I mean, well, it's hard to say, but it, it looked calmly like and collected, you know, like he's just like, I've got this. And, uh, you know, he just rode up to them. He just totally patiently waited for uh, Primos to essentially lead him out until the last 200 meters and uh, started his sprint and won quite handily. So, uh, so yeah, it was a pretty impressive and classy ride from him. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. 
Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. El ritmo de la vuelta. The rhythm of the vuelta. This is El Ritmo de la Vuelta, our daily re-immersion into the deep and murky waters of the Vuelta's songs through the ages, official songs I should say, with a giant churro for a snorkel and a pair of 1,000 euro gran reserva jamones ibericos de bellota for flippers. Today, Larry, we're going back to 2018, the last Vuelta Espana that wasn't roglified and another one whose official song I can now finally admit after a gruelling four-year battle to lobotomize it from my brain, expunge it from my memory, was another absolute banger. La vida son solo dos días. Life only lasts two days was its name. It's meaning that life is very short and we need to take advantage of it. As Primoz Roglic told us just the other day, today is today and tomorrow is tomorrow, huh? Not sure how relevant that is. But anyway, uh, Nuria Furgo is from Malaga and that's where the 2018 Vuelta began. Malaga is also in Andalusia, where we are still today. Um, Rowan Dennis claimed the first red jersey in the 8km opening day TT only for Michal Kwiatkowski to take it off him for three days to be followed by Rudy Molar for four. Simon Yates then saw and wore red for the first time after stage 10 to La Covatia, loaned it to Jesus Herrada after stage 12, but had it repossessed, this time definitively, or repossessed it, with his first stage win of the Vuelta at Les Praeres in Asturias, where Louis Meinkis won the other day. Yates would lose half a minute to both Enric Mas and Superman Lopez on the penultimate stage, enough for that pair to book their podium finishes, but Yates' final margin of victory was a still comfortable one at just under two minutes. Notable performances that year also came from double stage winners Rowan Dennis, Elia Viviani, Alejandro Valverde, Ben King and Thibaut Pino. 2018, Larry, you were not there, were you? I was not, no. I uh, started in 2017 and actually that was the last time I did it. When was your, sorry, 2017 was your last Welter? 2017 was my last Welter, yeah. And then I, I crashed out, yeah. Larry, we're going to talk a little bit now about well, your first Grand Tours. And let's well, take us back through the mists of time to your first Grand Tour. <laughs> yeah, so <clears throat> my first Grand Tour was also La Vuelta in uh, 2014. But yeah, so I was on BMC at the time. And um, okay, it started in Jerez de la Frontera. Ah, just around the corner from where we are now. 
Yeah. So, um, yeah, I was on BMC at the time and we had like a seriously stout team. So for me to, uh, be there, um, at my first grand tour with the team like we had was pretty impressive because it, it was Cadell Evans last grand tour. So that was like pretty big. Then we had Sammy Sanchez, Rowan Dennis, Philippe Gilbert. Um, so quite a lot of <laughs> champions. And then, um, yeah, it was like, uh, Kinziato, um, Steve Morbido, a guy named Dominique Nertz and Danny Luis. So, um, yeah, it was like, uh, quite a big learning experience sounds like for me. quite an intimidating yeah yeah it sounds like quite an intimidating group i'm guessing you weren't choosing the music on the team box no 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 i was uh not choosing anything i just listened and did what was what i was told so um you know it was like uh yeah definitely first teammate duty and um yeah i, I definitely think uh i learned a lot that year i wouldn't say i had any particularly great performances uh you know, the first week I was pretty strong and um, the team just put me with Sammy at all times because he was our GC guy. And then, um, yeah, I'd say after the first week, I kind of like faded. I, I think I I probably trained a bit too hard before I was, you know, just so eager um, to do my first Grand Tour and so excited. I think, yeah, I came in a bit hot and then um, I just kind of died. Uh, so, I mean, I was fine. It wasn't like wasn't like I was like, you know, last group pedo every day or something, but I wasn't necessarily in my best, best form, but I definitely learned a lot over the course of that three weeks. And, uh, yeah, it was a really good experience. G give me some examples of, of things that you did learn. So, you know, I think the thing is, um, before your first grand tour, you've only heard like tales, you know, like, oh, this is what it's going to be like. Oh, you're going to get an extra gear after and blah, 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 all this stuff. But I would say the thing I probably learned the most was how to conserve and how to ride like um, intelligently in the bunch. So, you know, I'll never forget, like, you know, the problem is if you're like a pretty strong guy um, and this happens with a lot of young guys, you never really learn how to ride well uh, in the bunch. You know, you never learn how to be like really efficient in everything you do in the bunch. And um, it kind of takes getting your ass kicked a little bit to learn how to ride well, because then you have no other choice. So I would say like for a lot of guys in their first Grand Tour, they reach this point of, um, you know, I don't know, like exhaustion that that they need to be so economical in everything that they do or else they're not going to finish. So I really learned how, you know, just like, for example, a small thing, you know, on this team, obviously, I was like the first guy to get bottles. So I'd go back to get bottles a lot, especially with a super hot Vuelta. We started in the south. And uh, yes, yeah, so, you know, it was like I was probably getting bottles 10 times a day. And every time I remember like... Um, I don't know if it was one of my teammates or someone else in the bunch was just like, okay, what you have to do is when you get bottles, wait for someone to be moving up the bunch, never move up the bunch on your own because like there's always going to be someone moving up. And if you move up in the wind alone, you'll use a lot of energy. Whereas like, you know, if, if you follow someone, you know, they're going to bring you to where you need to go. So maybe you have to wait five, 10 seconds, but there's going to be someone who passes you. And if you take their wheel, um, you know, you're going to not have to make that effort alone. So, um, you know, that was one thing that stuck with me and I still do that today. And another one, I remember, um, you know, we were following breaks, for example, like attacks 
And, um, you know, my teammate said like, don't ever like attack on your own, like always follow because you can fall for every, for every like, um, 10 attacks you follow, you can attack once on your own. So like, um, meaning that like you, you use so much more energy if you tack alone rather than like, um, following moves. So, you know, just these little things, um, really, I guess taught me a lot how to ride in the bunch, how to be more economical and how to be smart with, uh, and measured with the energy that you have. Well, Larry, it is sort of the, the cycling, pro cycling school for hard knocks or school of hard knocks. And well, there are a lot of riders at this Vuelta España who will have, have been enrolled into precisely that school, uh, this year's Vuelta España because there's a, a staggering 37 Grand Tour debutants at this Vuelta España, which I think is probably some kind of record. I mean, it's partly to, to do with the fact that there are some pro-continent continental division teams here whose almost their whole team um, is debutants. But, well, you and I were talking before we started recording about how it reflects a trend of younger and younger riders being sent, being blooded at Grand Tours. And I suppose the Vuelta is the one where they are most commonly blooded um i said 37 i set out this morning with a mission to interview all of them 37 in one morning wow. didn't <laughs> no but i didn't get very yeah. far i did four larry i did four we're gonna hear from okay. them today okay. so um we're gonna hear from them now so it's not an encuentro del dia today it's encuentros cuatro encuentros del dia um you're gonna hear from Marco Brenner of DSM, Luke Plapp of Ineos Grenadiers, and Filippo, uh, Filippo Conca of Lotto Sudal, and Ben Turner. Now, that might sound confusing, but I can tell you that Brenner is the guy who sounds very German, Plapp is the guy who sounds very Australian, Conca is the guy who sounds Italian, and Turner sounds very English. So, take it away, Rob Hatch, and let's hear from Marco Brenner, Luke Plapp, Filippo Conca, and Ben Turner, all of whom are riding their first Grand Tour here at this Vuelta a España. El Encuentro del Día. The meeting of the day. Uh, a lot. A lot of learnings. I don't know where... Uh, I'm sure on reflection there'll be a lot. Um, but we're in the third week now and uh, I feel quite good. So I think we've been doing it properly. So, yeah. Yeah, so far I think we can be really happy how we are doing. Fortunately, we lost three guys already due to COVID and... Uh, yeah, but I think after that we still were super motivated and uh, I personally had a good second week. Diamond also, I think the whole team did a really good job the last week and uh, we are looking forward also to the third week now. I did uh, Tour de Laine uh, in August, then Poly Normandy and then uh, normally I had to stay to, in France to do Tour de Limousin but uh, three days before Vuelta the team uh, called me the last moment because uh, Sebastian Grignard uh, that is uh, my teammate uh, was positive at Covid so yeah I I travel uh, by train three different train uh, in one day from Limoges to Paris then uh, I slept uh, to Paris but I was uh, in Paris really late and then at five uh, in the morning uh, I wake up I woke up uh, and uh, to take to the train uh, from Paris to Bruxelles and then from Bruxelles to Erentals. That is the city where uh, there is the service course uh, of uh, Lotto Sudal. Mate, I, uh, I need a lot more training in the legs. This is uh, 
it's definitely another level to what I'm used to. And look, I think before before the Vuelta started, I had 35 race days in about two years and almost doubled that now. And I think, yeah, that's just shown that I need the training and the uh, race days in the legs to to be able to be competitive. But I think uh, for for next year and every other Grand Tour, I'm going to be so much better for it. No, I think I've been doing all right. I've managed the effort well. And uh, the last few days of last week, I felt really good. So, um, and I was climbing pretty well, actually, for a big guy. And hopefully we can do that this week. Yeah, so far I'm actually super happy. Um, like, I struggled a bit with uh, cold in the first week, but then I really recovered after the rest day and the TT. And uh, yeah, the second week was good. And I hope that I can maybe make uh, another step in the third week or at least uh, try to keep the level now. In the last two years, I had a lot of problems uh, almost every month, um, every month and half. I had to restart again after uh, some problems. Uh, what kind of problems? Yeah, a lot of times sick. Also this wind tending it is behind the knee and uh, yeah. I was really excited to Vuelta also because I knew that my shape can, uh, could be grow day by day and uh, in fact uh, this happened. The first week was the worst I think. The first week was really was a super hard week and then I was always like questioning whether I'm too fatigued or not, and now it's kind of uh, just waking up every morning tired, so it's fine. Yeah, I mean, uh, I also had to learn to uh, how to ride in a bunch and how to save, because in the end it's a really long game, and if I yeah, spend my energy on stupid things every day, maybe it's not too bad on one day, but if I do it every day, then uh, it sums up to the end. Yeah, I think uh, three days ago when I was in the breakaway, it was a huge fight and uh, I think in the end it was stupid to be in because in the end I want to be in the breakaway to win the stage and not just to be in and uh, yeah, I was, I was probably already on the limit just to be in. So in the end it's better when I stay in the bunch and try it on another day. Now after one day of uh, rest, I feel a bit better but uh, yeah, it's really hard. Only six more days. Yeah, yeah. But uh, today I hope that uh, it will be a easy day and also the last one, so other four days. Look, I'm loving it and I've enjoyed it. And just tell us a little bit about Carlos. I know you guys are, I think you're good mates. Um, what kind of character is he in the team? Oh, mate, I love Carlos. He's uh, he's an absolute ripper bloke. Um, I think it's uh, it's quite enjoyable to see when he uh, before the tour started. Very humble and quiet, but I think he had a, a nice bit of confidence about him inside. Um, and you can see it come out each day that he performs well, but yeah, I think he knows he goes all right. And look, um, yeah, on the bus, mate, he's a, he's a pleasure to be around. He keeps the morale high, and we all love working for him, but me especially. So, Larry, there we heard from a very sort of bouncy, um, exuberant-sounding quartet. Are you still bouncy and exuberant, Larry, when you go, go off to do a, a grand tour? I mean, I think I think I, I still enjoy it. And, you know, I think it's still like, uh, I don't know, it's a nice uh, environment to be in, especially the La Vuelta. I think it's just like a nice ambiance there. You know, it's kind of more relaxed and uh, it's enjoyable. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> but it is it is quite staggering, though, isn't it? How the sort of conventional wisdom about riders having to do two or three years and having to get to sort of 22, 23 before they're even considered for 
selection for a Grand Tour has completely changed. And we heard from Marco Brenner that he's just turned 20 in this Vuelta a España. And he, well, he's in his second pro season already. But not only is he riding, he's acquitting himself extremely well. And he's not just surviving every day. He's very much on the lookout for breakaways, still feeling good as we get into the final week. And, you know, this, this really feeds into the, the wider discussion about Avonapol versus Roglic. On the one hand, you've got experience, a lot of experience. Um, Primoz Roglic is 33. And Remco Avonapol is only 22, riding his second Grand Tour. And, you know, Larry, I don't know if you can remember. I mean, 2014 was your first one. It's eight years ago. Can you remember the difference in physical sensations of, um, well, particularly as regards recovery? Because in theory, a 19-year-old, a 20-year-old, metabolically, they should be recovering better than a 32 or 33-year-old. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess the thing is, is now I would say I'd recover much better, but that's also because we're just way... yeah, we're way more clued in on, you know, nutrition and things like that for recovery. So, you know, back then, I don't know, I, I'm sure I wasn't eating enough in the race. And, you know, I think I was probably just making a lot of mistakes, but not that I should have known any better because uh, it wasn't like the teams at the time knew better than that. So I think um, the thing is, is because we've improved so much in all these ways that like, that's why we see these young guys are able to perform at the level that they are. Um, so, you know, I think it's like guys are probably just eating a ton more now than, than they were in the past. And, and I think that helps uh, in terms of recovery. So, um, yeah, I don't know. It's like I would say, you know, if I were to have been at this Vuelta this year, I think I probably would have still had my best form that I've ever had or I probably would have recovered better than I've ever recovered, um, just because I know what to do more. Um, but you know, I guess Evanapol would have such a team around him that he would also know what to do. Uh, it's more just on the bike stuff that maybe Primos would be quite a bit more experienced with him th- with than him. <laughs> I mean, we're talking in really in very broad terms here, but you know, thinking about the accumulation of seasons and the accumulation of Grand Tours, I mean, I look at some of the guys here, Alejandro Valverde is in 32, Luis Leon Sanchez is in 28 Grand Tours. Um, and, and just the number of sort of 35,000 kilometre seasons, I don't know if that's still the ballpark figure for what, you know, a guy like you would generally do or 30,000 kilometre yeah. seasons. You know, that yeah. does give you a huge base, doesn't it? And when I said that, you know, a 20-year-old should recover better than a 33-year-old, what that doesn't take into account, that that reservoir that you build up, all of those seasons of doing that number of kilometers, that also is going to help your recovery, isn't it? Yeah, I would guess so. But, you know, it's something that I've been thinking about a lot lately. And and I thought it was interesting listening to Luke Plapp and what he said about race days. Um, Just because you know, I'm not really sure. You know, I feel like we had all these ideas before, like you said about, you know, a guy not starting a Grand Tour before he's like 22, 23. Um, and I feel like the rule book has totally just been thrown out the window in the last couple of years. So I don't really know if that whole like um, years of base thing is that, you know, really makes that big a difference or not. You know, like if it did, I think we wouldn't see these young guys going so well. So it's really hard to say. And, uh, I just think like we're still learning so much and it probably, we probably won't know for another five, 10 years, like what really is the best and things like that. Yeah. It's, it's, 
It's fascinating as well to hear older guys kind of confused and still searching. I mean, we heard from Thomas de Hent a few days ago, and he's still very much in an... Well, he's had to go back to an experimental phase of, you know, trying different lengths of periods at altitude, um, different sort of different proportion of his training given over to quality versus quantity, um, racing versus training. And he's still searching. And I suppose he's had to, well, a lot of the older guys have had to reevaluate and had to rethink things that they, they do. And um, whereas I suppose you would imagine that when, once you get to 32, 33, 34, 35, there's nothing that you still have to learn and you know exactly how to prepare yourself, you know your body perfectly. And there's a, there's a set formula that you just follow every year, but that's not the case, um, which is, it, it is interesting, really. Um, talking of very experienced guys in this Vuelta España, Daryl Impey, he's in 11 Grand Tours. Not as many as I would have thought, actually. Fewer than, for example, Superman Lopez, who's done 12, but I think he's about a decade younger. Um, Impey's 37. He's riding here for Israel Premier Tech. And, well, he very much belongs at the opposite end of the age scale to some of those guys we heard from earlier. So I thought it would be interesting to ask him about how his Vuelta España is going and, and that question of age versus experience and who comes out on top in that equation. I've um, been enjoying your videos. Um, the, you did one where you talked about how hard the first week was. Um, how do you see this last week being just for everyone, not just for the GC guys? Uh, it's going to be just as hard, I think. Uh, Look, there's a couple of us that are like can do something in the last week, and then there's a lot of guys. I don't really know which group I'm part of. Um, they can do something in the last week, but it's it's going to be a tough race. I mean, obviously, a lot of the teams are smelling blood from uh, the last two days. You know, really hard days. They see the red jersey still up for grabs, and uh, we've got a strong Jumbo Visma, strong Enios. Uh, so collectively, they're going to ride strong and they're going to put in a hard work for quick step. So. We're going to be the guys that are suffering and going through the motions with those days. A lot of experience in your team. We're going to put it politely, a lot of experience. Um, is that an advantage when it gets to the third week or is it better to be, you know, obviously these guys, 21, 22, in theory, they should be recovering better? Um, yeah, I think it's uh, experience is one thing, but uh, age, I mean, yeah, you know, the, the guys are going faster and stronger and, uh, you know, as you get older, you get slower. So, um, there you go good for the sound um, but uh, yeah I think the good thing is I know what to expect I know how to ride within my limits uh, especially on a finish like today um, you know coming off an easy rest day yesterday and also I know it's the last opportunity uh, for me probably today so um, might as well just go all in and uh, in the next couple of days survive try and get in a break if I can help uh, guys like Carl and that but it's been a grueling uh, Walter it's also I haven't done a grand tour in the last two years so uh, to be back in this mix here, it's uh, a reminder of how hot cycling really is. I've been speaking to a few guys this morning who are doing their first Grand Tour. I think your first one was 2012 Giro, is that right? Yeah. Um, what's your main memory of that race and how and the culture shock of doing your first Grand Tour? Oh, there was just about excitement. I didn't know how to actually judge my efforts or anything. There were some days I was trying to actually still race Robbie Hunter for the first South African, you know, that kind of mentality. Stick on, hold on to the group. Um, and as I've as I've grown and as I've learned in the Grand Tours, is that like the third week really creeps up on you. Yeah. So um, you know these days in the vault, particularly, I've taken that uh, things I've learned there and like, kind of the days where it doesn't suit me. We've got no objective. I've really taken a back step and just kind of 
kept as much energy as I can. I know this third week is going to creep up on everyone. I mean, these guys, I mean, they're so young. I mean, they're a couple of 19-year-olds in this race. Have they been thrown in too early, or they seem to be able to cope with it? Certainly, are you some Brenner at DSM? Look, I think, uh, yeah, yeah, look, they're already, I mean, they're, they're physically they're able to do it. But I think this third week we're getting the experienced guys showing it. And you can start seeing the cracks already happening, you know. Guys that are experienced, guys like Rog Legend, that, that have, not their first rodeo, you know. And especially, it's also handling the pressure when, you know, when you're in the leader's jersey every day, you're doing press conference, things like that, it takes a soul on you. And there's a big expectation from Belgium, from everywhere else. So, you know, guys like Rog Legend are used to this. Um, that's going to work in their favour. And they're going to keep just putting the pressure on, keep putting the pressure on. And I wouldn't be surprised if we see something from Movistar in the next couple of days, pushing the pressure on the downhills as well. Sounds like you think Roglic is going to win this, Walter. I think uh, he's definitely in with the shots. I think, uh, you know, Remco's obviously has shown some great form, but um, like I say, it takes its toll on you. And, yeah, I think it's all to play for. It's really exciting this week for some guys. For us, it's not so exciting. Jumbo's probably got a lot more experience, I think, and uh, a quick step in this regard. I think quick step was unfortunate to lose, like, uh, you know, some of the engines. Um, whereas Jumbo's kind of really still got a really strong, solid team here. You know, guys like Rowan Dennis, they can, can count as two people. So, um, you know, guys like that kind of strength, Jumbo's really, really, I think, got the, the upper card there with the team performance you can see at the start of the races yeah very difficult to control and uh, everyone's going to throw everything at quick step these next couple of days i think jumbo has got a lot of confidence that you know they've they've been here before they've done it before they know what it takes not to say the quick step hasn't but um, we're seeing a lot more experienced team i with jumbo versus quick step so yeah one thing i thought that was kind of interesting to hear in um mp's interview was you know he said i know how to ride in my limits and and I thought that was kind of interesting because it's something that I would say I do quite well is like I'm I'm really good at like knowing my limit and not going over it. Um, but it's something I find is a big difference um, between the older guys and the younger guys, because I think sometimes these younger guys can actually go way deeper. Um, so. I was talking with my friend Matteo Jorgensen and, um, you know, he'll do a race and he'll just be absolutely destroyed for a period of time where I'm just, I don't know. It's like, I almost have this governor, uh, that won't allow me to go as deep as him. And this is something I found is pretty common in some of the young guys. It's like, they can go so deep that they're like wrecked for a few days. Whereas I feel like a lot of the older guys, I don't know, it's maybe our bodies are like too scared to go that deep because we've done it a few times and it's just like no after that. Um, but I thought it was kind of an interesting thing um, that he said. And I feel like that's another contrast between the young guys and uh, the not as young guys. Well, I think, yeah, our bodies, whether we're cyclists or not, our bodies build in and learn mechanisms to stop us getting hurt, don't they? Um, yeah, and and our and our lives become narrower and narrower, and our comfort <laughs> zones become well. We depending on which way you look at it, smaller or or larger. Um, but you know, such is life, Larry. Such is life. Um, as as, Nura, as Nuria Fergo, is that was that her name said? Um, life only lasts two days. I life passes very quickly. And on, on that maudlin note, Larry, I think we should end this part before before it gets any darker. <laughs> Sounds good. Science in Sport is supporting the cycling podcast at the 2022 Vuelta España. Science in Sport, fueled by science. 
Science in Sport are our long-term supporters and they have everything you need to fuel your ride before, during and afterwards at scienceinsport.com. And if you use the discount code SISCP25, you can get 25% off as well. I was very grateful to have a Science in Sport gel or two stuffed in my back pocket on Sunday when we were riding the tour of the cornfields, Simon Gill and I, and uh, I reached for a gel with around an hour to go just to make sure I got across the line without hitting the wall. And I've learned that a group of Cycling Podcast listeners had a tough day out on the bike too. Three riders, Adam Rowe, Andy Balm and Lauren Alderbear, tackled the route of the 12 Hills of Christmas, which is a ride that a friend of mine, Andy Brown, devised a number of years ago. And, well, as it says on the tin, it tackles 12 hills. And we traditionally rode it in the run-up to Christmas. We decorate our bikes with tinsel and Christmas lights and stop for a Christmas lunch and a pint. And last year, I made an episode of Explore uh, while I was out doing that ride solo last year. It sounds a lot of fun to go out and do it with a group of podcast listeners. And I gather that Adam, Andy and Laurent also met up with Stuart Barker in Redbourne before they set off on the ride, which is around 100 kilometres long, and it took them just under four hours. Sounds like I had a great day out, and it's inspired me to think about doing that route again. Maybe I'll do it in the autumn Uh, Maybe the 12 Hills of Halloween towards the end of October. Who knows? Uh, Watch this space. Maybe see a few of you out there on the road then. That's all from me today. Back to Daniel in Spain. La etapa de mañana, la cena de ayer. Tomorrow's stage, yesterday's food. So, Larry, last night was another night of tapas, and there was a taco involved as well. There was also some meat involved. Ooh, wow. the, there will have been some jamón involved, because there is every night, but I can't remember what precisely, whether it was jamón sprinkles, as discussed the other night with Brian Nygaard. Um, there was some, uh, some manzanilla, some sherry. I mean, talking about feeling old, this is making me feel very old, and um, the fact that I've had to acquire a taste for sherry in the last few days, because we've been, we've been in that neck of the woods, um, San Lucar de Barameda, famous for its manzanilla. So that was quite enjoyable. I should also mention, actually, while we're on the subject of, of wine, um, that the cycling podcast of Welter Selection is still available from Divine Sellers. Go to www.divine, that's letter D, then Vine Sellers, all one word, dot com. And well, there's a, there's a bottle of something, uh, there's a white one from San Lucar de Barameda in the selection. Larry, tomorrow we're finally leaving Andalusia, which I'm quite sad about. We're going to Extremadura, which is the least densely populated, most sparsely populated region of Spain. What awaits us in the race? Okay, Um, so tomorrow is stage 17 from Aracena to Monasterio de Tentudia. Uh, 162.3 kilometers with 2,780 meters of climbing. Final climb is 10K at an average of 5% with a small flat section in the middle. So the last four kilometers are an average of 7.5%. And yeah, I mean, I guess it's a bit of a lumpy stage up until then, but it's nothing crazy. Um, So I don't know. I guess I foresee... A breakaway um, taking the win and I don't know maybe someone like Mark Padoon uh, winning the stage hmm 
Uh, could it be another, possibly another Jay Vine day, possibly another Richard Carapaz day? Um, I think Ineos I mean, will it's still be possible. Stage I just hunting. feel like those guys have faded a little bit. Yeah. Um, I don't know, Larry. I think Carapaz might be a good bet for tomorrow. I wouldn't ordinarily yeah. have thought that tomorrow would be a good shout for uh, roglification and some bonus seconds. Whether, mm. I don't know, whether Jumbo Visma will be minded to or able to control the race on days like that this week. Just on the finish tomorrow, the the monastery up there at Tentudia, expertly pronounced by you, Larry. Um, there's an interesting uh, a legend which supposedly explains why it's called Tentudia. We talked about the, the Muslims, the, the Muslim conquest of Spain, south of Spain, the other day when we were in Granada, the Alhambra. And this name, Tentudia, apparently comes from a battle or an attempt to to fight off, ward off Muslim invaders. And this battle occurred late one day and the army leader, captain, admiral, whatever you call it, um, he appealed to Santa Maria, to the Virgin uh, Mary, um, stop it. Stop it turning tonight. Uh, Santa Maria, deten tu dia. Um, Santa Maria, Keep it, keep, um, keep the sun shining, basically. Hence, um, the Monastero de Tentudia. Um, and this is seen as still talked about as a miracle today, Larry. Wow. And will we see any miracles tomorrow? Will <laughs> Remco Avenapool, will, will he fall victim to a, a miracle? It would take that, I think. I mean, Eric Mass, how do you see him and Movistar um, approaching the last week? It was interesting in his interview, Daryl Impey talked about Movistar's experience and suggested that this would enable them to try something out of the ordinary this week. Yeah, I mean, I think they have a really strong and experienced team, so I, I would not be surprised if they try something. Um, yeah, it's going to be, I mean, it's hard to say because I think, yeah, Roglic probably would have been really the guy to watch tomorrow. Uh, but because of his crash, I don't know how much we're going to see from him. Hopefully he's still in the race. Uh, but yeah, I think, you know, Movistar will definitely try something, but it's not that crazy hard of a climb. So I wouldn't be surprised if they, you know, set a hard tempo on the bottom first part and then, you know, Moss tries to launch. But I just don't see tomorrow being a day where you can gain a ton, ton of time. I mean, unless someone totally cracks um, which is very possible because, you know, now we're well into the third week. The, the fact that Remco is telling us that he's feeling good and he's almost going out of his way to tell us he's feeling good, what should we read into that, if anything? Nah, I think he's just, you know... I don't think he'd tell us if he wasn't feeling good, so... Um, mm-hmm. I don't know, I think he's just trying to talk a lot, you know? Um, I, I don't think there's anything you can really read into that, especially. Hmm, hmm... Well, Larry, hmm. Hmm. well, I've got a very conspiratorial tone and, well, I've got all sorts of conspiracy theories um, <laughs> marinating in my mind this evening after all the things that we've talked about, plasticine, fake punctures, um, 600 kilo plunders of, of treasure, gold, Roman gold coins, um, fascinating stuff. Larry, and we are staying just on the outskirts of Sevilla tonight. So Tomares, I said this was the richest place in Andalusia, reputedly, um, but we are heading into Sevilla. That's where we're staying this evening. So looking forward to that. Um, We were going to have some wistful gazing from Fran Reyes, but I think he's off on a 
some kind of plasticine related quest as well because he also saw <laughs> saw the the fateful sludge um, splodge sorry at the finish i can't see fran at the moment but fran i think will be back for some wistful gazing tomorrow in the meantime well that just about concludes this evening's entertainment larry you're going to be back on is it thursday or friday larry i think it's thursday isn't it thursday. i think we, we might talk yeah. we might talk valverde alejandro valverde on thursday we'll see how things go we'll see if primoz roglic is back on his bike tomorrow um but Joining me tomorrow will be Brian Nygaard, I believe, for more conspiracies and no doubt some wine chat. But I'll try to, I'll try to limit that. Larry, I'm going to wish you a lovely evening, and I'm going to thank you. I'm sure you're off down the, you off down the promenade again. You're off. Um, uh, I'm probably just going to promenade to the kitchen and get some dinner. Okay. But, you know. Okay. Uh, <laughs> have a pot noodle Um, okay Larry well thank you very much and we'll, we'll speak to you on Thursday thanks Daniel see you Thursday the cycling podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore Daniel Freed and Lionel Byrne